One of the great things about Easter Sunday is I don't have to dream up a topic to preach on, right? It's kind of a given. If I stood here today and decided to preach on the principles of fighting fair from Deuteronomy 25, that would be weird, right? Actually, it'd be weird to preach on that passage at any time. Go home and read it. It's bizarre. But today is kind of obvious. We need to talk about the resurrection, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to come back to that, not just once a year, but again and again. It's kind of like watching your favorite movie. You know how it's going to end, but you watch it anyway because you love the story. It's like Die Hard at Christmas, right? For some of you, me included. But this is the thing, we know how it ends. If we've been around at all, if we've read the Bible or been exposed to uh, cultural references even of Jesus, the end of the story is that he rises again from the dead. It's actually not the end of the story, there's much more to come. But we know how it develops, and yet we need to visit it again and again. This is what N.T. Wright says about this story of Jesus. He says, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it, as the story of the love of God, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. I don't know if you ever thought about being a Christian, about just living in a state of astonished gratitude. He did that for me, and I get to go where now? Astonished gratitude. And so as we come back to visit the resurrection again and again, that's what it's meant to produce, the sense of thanksgiving. So just to be clear about the message that we're preaching and what we're claiming, this is the astonishing claim of those who follow Jesus. That Jesus of Nazareth, a real person in history, was crucified by the Romans and actually literally died. He was buried in a tomb, but the third day, he came back to life. When you put it that way, do I hear an amen, by the way? Amen. But when you put it that way, it's a crazy claim. It's an astonishing claim. But that is the claim of the Christian faith, because the Christian faith is not a philosophy. The Christian faith is not a set of moral principles to live by. The Christian faith is an event in history. It's an historical event. And based on the the truth of that event, everything changes. Because if it's true, and we believe it is, but if it's true that Jesus actually died and actually rose again from the dead, then that truth changes everything. Everything we know about life, everything we thought about the world, Everything we think about suffering, everything we think about conflict and pain, everything we think about the kingdoms of this world and how firm they seem to be, everything changes when we come to believe and realize that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Everything changes. It's a game changer. But how do we know it's true? How do we know? This is the the time when preachers normally roll out 10 reasons why you should definitely believe in the resurrection of Christ. I'm not going to give 10. It's getting a little warm and humid in here. So, But I will give a couple. How do we know it's true? In the Bible and in the New Testament, they appeal to a couple of sources. The first thing that they appeal to is this. 
the testimony of the disciples, the eyewitness accounts, the accounts of people who were actually there. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you see a whole list of names and people, 500 at a time, that Jesus appeared to. And it's this appeal to the eyewitness accounts that Paul and the other New Testament writers appeal to when they want to talk about the proof of the resurrection. Now, the importance of the eyewitness accounts is that they're actually credible witnesses. Because if they're not credible witnesses, this whole story falls apart, right? I remember the time, and I promised Kira I would only give one illustration about her today. I remember the time when I lost some credibility with my daughter, Kira. She was four years old. That's an early stage in which to lose credibility with your daughter. We were in the backyard. We were living down in BC, and there was a ravine behind our yard. And down at the bottom of the ravine was a creek. And Kira and her older sister, Triona, and a friend, Anna, decided to go down and explore. Well, as they were coming back, I thought it would be fun to pretend to howl like a wolf. This is a dad thing, isn't it? Dads think, oh, this would be hilarious. And moms are like, why? Why are you doing that? And so I did my best wolf impression. And uh, the thing is, four-year-olds don't know that there are no wolves back there. (laughs) Right? That's what I was counting on. And suddenly, I heard screams come from the girls. And the two older girls booked it up the hill and back into the yard. Poor Kira with her stubby little legs. She could not get up in time. And she was left behind. And everybody's thinking, I hope you paid for counseling for her. It's coming. But my point is, even to this day now, if we're at a campsite and for some strange reason I decide to howl like a wolf and, uh, and pretend to scare people, Kira, if she's there, will look at me and say, Dad, no one believes you. I am literally the man who cried wolf. You know the story? Credibility. I lack a certain credibility in that department with my daughter. So how do we know that these guys were credible? How do we know that they were credible Witnesses. Well, first of all, they were actually eyewitnesses. They were there. Sometimes we sing the song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And I kind of want to answer, no, I was not, actually. But these guys were, and these women were. They were actual eyewitnesses. These are people in history that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. But they're also credible because they display honorable character. These are not some people that are in disrepute. They're not people that are in jail. They're not people that are in a place where they're caught in lies. These are people of good reputation in the community. These are trustworthy people of honest character. These are also people that had sufficient intelligence. They understood the times. They knew what was going on. They understood something of the scriptures and what was supposed to happen. And they were able to articulate with their own words what they saw and experienced. Their credibility is also because these are people who realized the personal consequence of their claim. It was not a good idea to go around claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead because you were likely to suffer the same fate as he did on the cross if you did that. And in fact, all of those disciples, except for John, suffered a martyr's death. They fully realized that if they made this claim, they were putting their lives in jeopardy. To me, that gives credibility to their witness. 
but they're also credible because they didn't embellish their narratives. They didn't make it into fanciful stories. They simply told the facts. And they're also credible because they simply appealed to what they saw and what they heard. Time and time again, when people challenged them, they were like, I can't explain it. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. That's what a witness does. For all these reasons and more, these people that are listed in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere in the New Testament are credible witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And that's one of the pillars that the New Testament writers appeal to when they're talking to you and me about the resurrection of Jesus, the testimony of the disciples. But there's a second proof that we appeal to, and the proof is this. It's the testimony of scriptures, the Old Testament, as we call them, scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, these indications from the Hebrew writings that we should have expected this, actually, that we should have expected God to send his Messiah, who would die and rise again. That's what Paul says, right? That Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures. And that he rose again the third day, what? According to the scriptures. And so there's this appeal to scriptures. Over these last number of weeks here at Bonavista, we've been journeying through a series called Easter Eggs. And it's not the eggs that you paint, and it's not the chocolate eggs. Those are my favorite I've mentioned before. No one has yet given me any, but those are my favorite. But we're actually talking about Easter eggs in the sense of like if you're a gamer or you watch a lot of movies and the producers sometimes put Easter eggs in those things, things that you search for and when you find them, they unlock a little bit extra in the game or the movie. Well, we're talking about Easter eggs about Jesus in the Old Testament, that these little traces of Jesus that if we discover them, they tell us that this was supposed to happen according to the scriptures. And there's different kinds of Easter eggs about Jesus in the Old Testament. Some of them are straight out predictions, they're prophecies. On Good Friday, we had a combined service here and we looked at Isaiah 53. Verse by verse by verse, that is a direct prophecy about Jesus, can only be fulfilled in Jesus. But then there's other parts of the Old Testament, other Easter eggs that serve as a type of Jesus, a kind of parallel story that once we get into it, we realize that we're actually talking about Jesus. Well, Jonah is one of those stories. And this is one of the most overlooked Easter eggs about Jesus in the Old Testament. The sign of Jonah. Now, we have a lot of water here. We don't have a big fish or a Jonah to throw in. But let me remind you of the basic details of the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God. He was told by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was what? His enemy. He did not want to see Nineveh saved. In fact, he wanted Nineveh to burn. And so he decided to go the opposite direction. But God had other plans. Do you ever have that happen with God? You decide to go one direction. He goes, no, I told you to go here. Right? That's what happens with Jonah. So a big storm comes up. They chuck him overboard. He's swallowed by a giant fish. And then the fish pukes him up on land. He goes to Nineveh, proclaims God's message. And what happens? Nineveh repents and Jonah pouts. That's the end of the story, right? Well, when we read that story, uh, part of the problem is we don't realize that that story is actually setting us up to understand Jesus better. 
It's not just a story to debate about, well, could a fish really swallow a man and all that. It's actually meant to be a story that sets us up to understand Jesus better. How do we know that? Because of Matthew chapter 12 that was read for us. And in Matthew 12, Jesus is debating with the religious powers. And they say to him, Jesus, give us a sign. Dance for us, Jesus. And Jesus says, I will not dance. But I've already given you a sign. And the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Jesus only ever compares himself to one prophet, actually. And he compares himself to the prophet Jonah. The problem with the story of Jonah, though, is most of what we know of Jonah, to be honest, comes from our flannel graph in Sunday school, or what? Veggie Tales. Some of you remember the story of Jonah and Veggie Tales, right? And so we pictured Jonah in the whale, in the fish, having a great time, having a great party, maybe carving his initials, Jonah was here kind of thing, in the whale. And so we miss some of the power of the story, even though I love Veggie Tales but sometimes it uh, overwhelms us and we don't get to the heart of the story. But there's evidence as you read through that passage that Brenda read for us today that Jonah didn't have a party in the belly of the fish. In fact, it seems that he died in there. As you read through the story, you hear him talking about in retrospect that when he was in the belly of the fish that he goes down to Sheol, the place of the dead, to the pit. There's a word in there in Hebrew that means he breathed his last. And then when he spat up on the shore, when God comes to him, he says, arise. And the word that's used there is the same word that Jesus used with a little girl who's died when he goes and says, arise, come back to life. And so there's this story that becomes a parallel of what Jesus is about to do. And that's why Jesus appeals to the sign of Jonah. But that's not the heart of the sign. It's not just about the three days and three nights and rising again from the dead. The point that Jesus brings up with Jonah is this. It's the reaction of the people of Nineveh to his preaching. They recognized that Jonah was sent from God and they believed his message and they repented. And the whole city was transformed because they believed. That's the sign that Jesus is appealing to. In the same way, the great sign that the resurrection of Jesus is real is found in lives that are changed because people repent and believe the gospel. That's the parallel we're meant to draw from the story of Jonah. That as we repent and believe the gospel, our lives are changed, and our changed lives are proof of the resurrection. That's why we had baptisms today on Easter Sunday, because these people said, I believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and I've turned around and I'm following after him. And because of that, my life is different. My life has been changed, which means we don't have to appeal only to the witness of a bunch of guys and, and women who are long dead 2,000 years ago. We get to look at living testimonies today to the resurrection of Jesus. We get to look at living proof because the resurrection of Jesus transforms people's lives today. That's the claim. The claim is not only that Jesus rose from the dead. The claim is that his resurrection can change our lives. And that's the important part. Well, what's expected? 
not perfection. Jesus doesn't make us perfect human beings. What's expected instead, I think, is authenticity. Jesus makes it real for us. He makes life real. He makes death real. He makes hope real. He makes work real. He makes everything about what we do in our relationships real and important and true and precious. That's what the resurrection does for us. He brings authentic life. Not only life, but life to the full. Think of all the characters that are in the story of the resurrection. Think of Mary. Mary, in her pain, mistakes Jesus for the gardener. But then when Jesus calls her name, what does she say? Rabboni, master. She's transformed by an encounter with the resurrection Christ. Think of Thomas. Thomas openly doubts. He questions the, the resurrection. If you're here today and you're questioning, you're like Thomas. And Thomas was never kicked out. He was never excluded. He was embraced by Jesus. He was brought in. And when Thomas sees Jesus, what does he say? My Lord and my God. He's transformed. What happens with Peter? Peter messes up big time. I mean, this guy, how is he even a disciple? He continuously gets things wrong. I mean, he chops off a guy's ear at one point. He denies Jesus three times. What happens on the beach after the resurrection? Peter says, you know that I love you. He's transformed by the resurrection. Think of Paul, the apostle Paul. He's, he's persecuting Christians. He's standing while, while the clothes of Stephen, the first martyr, are brought to his feet. It was his fault that Stephen was killed. And then he encounters Jesus, and he goes on to establish the church and the gospel. The, the worst of sinners, he calls himself. And yet he's transformed by the resurrection. And think of the crowd, the great crowd in Jerusalem. And many of them would have chanted, crucify him. But then after the resurrection and when Peter preaches, they say, what must I do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe the gospel. That's the transformation that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. The kind of authentic response that we're meant to have that makes life real. Not perfect, but real. The resurrection and our response to the resurrection acknowledges the pain and complexity of our world and yet holds on to hope. It allows room for doubt and questions and yet still believes. It makes room for and embraces others in love even when we don't fully understand them. And it recognizes the truth, acknowledges our sin, and repents and turns to God. That's the authentic response to the resurrection of Jesus. So the message of Easter, and my message today is the same as it is every year, and so it should be. The message of Easter is this, that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you and I are now invited to belong to it. Let's repent and believe the good news and live in that glorious freedom that Jesus won for us at his death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you that you had a plan when our lives were just a mess in shambles as humanity, and we often see it, we continue to sin, we continue to make mistakes, continue to mess up, and you continue to love us. Thank you for showing your love in such awesome power by sending Jesus.
who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, but didn't stay dead, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And today we see living, walking testimonies to your resurrection power. Help us to live in that power. Help us bring glory to your name as we give thanks in Jesus' great name. Amen.